Section 11 of The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ian Hutchings. Voices.com slash people slash Ian dot Hutchings. The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier. A Chronicle of Our Own Time by Oscar D. Skelton. Section 11. Chapter 7. An Empire in Transition. The Secret of Empire. The Old Colonial System. Partner Nations. Achieving Self-Government. Building Up the Partnership. The High Commissioner. New Foreign Problems. First Colonial Conference. Political Federation. Inter-Imperial Defense. Inter-Imperial Trade. When Canada's problems seemed too great for her to solve unaided, Many had looked to Washington for relief in ways which have been reviewed. Others looked to London. The relations between Canada and the other parts of the empire did not become the central issue in any political campaign. Until late in the period now under survey, they aroused little systematic public discussion. There were few acute episodes to crystallize the filial sentiment for the motherland which existed in the country. Yet throughout these years, that readjustment in the relations between the colonies and the mother country, which is perhaps the most significant political development of the century, was steadily proceeding. Steadily and surely, if for the most part unconsciously, the transformation of the empire went on, until, in the following period, it became a fact and a problem which none could blink, and the central theme in public interest and political activity. The story of this transformation of how the little isles in the North Sea ventured and blundered into worldwide empire, of how at first they endeavored to rule this vast domain in the approved fashion for the power and profit of the motherland, of how this policy was slowly abandoned because unprofitable and impossible, of how when this change took place most men looked to the ending of a connection which no longer paid, of how acquired momentum and inherited obligations on the one side and instinctive loyalty on the other prevented this result, of how the new lands across the sea grew in numbers and strength and national spirit and, withal, in the determination to work out a permanent partnership on the new basis of equality, this is the most wonderful story political annals have to tell. The British Empire of today, tested in fire and not found wanting, is the paradox and miracle of political achievement full of hope for the future of the rest of the world. In shaping the policy which has made the continuance and growth and adjustment of the empire possible, Canadian statesmen of both parties played a leading part. That long story cannot here be told, but a few of the significant steps must be recalled to make clear the development of yesterday and today. In the expansion of Europe all over the five continents and the seven seas which has marked the past five centuries, the Englishman found a roomy place in the sun. By luck or pluck, by trusted honesty or sublime assurance and with little aid from his government, he soon outdistanced Frenchmen and Dutchmen, Spaniard and Portuguese, in the area and richness of the regions over which his flag floated and in which his trading posts or his settlements were established. This empire was ruled, as other colonial domains were ruled, to advance the power and the profit of the motherland. The colonies and dependencies were plantations, estates beyond the seas, to be acquired and guarded for the gain of the mother country. 
They were encouraged by bounty and preference to grow what the mother country needed, and were compelled by parliamentary edict to give the mother country a monopoly of their markets for all she made. Great Britain never applied these doctrines with the systematic rigor of the Spaniard of the 17th century or the German of the 20th, but the monopoly of the direct trade with the colonies and the direct subordination of the colonies to secure this end were nevertheless the cardinal doctrines of imperial policy. Slowly, this old colonial system broke down. It became impossible to keep in political subjugation millions of men across the seas of the same vigorous race. This the American Revolution drove home, and the Canadian insurrections of 1837 again made unmistakable. In the views of most men, it came to appear unprofitable, even if possible. Gradually, the ideas of Adam Smith and Pitt and Huskisson, of Cobden and Bright and Peel, took possession of the English mind. Trade monopolies, it was now held, hampered more than they helped, even if costless. But when maintained at heavy expense, at cost of fortification and diplomatic struggle and war, they became worse than useless, a drag on the development of both colony and mother country. So the fetters which impeded trade and navigation were discarded. There followed from the forties onward a period of drift, of waiting for the coming separation. When the trade monopoly which was the object of empire ceased, most men in Britain reasoned that the end of the empire, in so far as it included colonies settled by white men, could not be far distant. Yet the end did not come. Though radical politicians and publicists urged cutting the last link of connection, though conservative statesmen damned the wretched colonies as millstones about our necks, Though undersecretaries said farewell to one last governor-general after another, and the London Times bade Canadians, take up your freedom, your days of apprenticeship are over, in spite of all, the colonies lingered within the fold. Some dim racial instinct, the force of momentum, or the grip of inherited obligations kept them together until gradually the times changed and the stage was set for another scene. Alike in the motherland and in the colonies, men had stumbled upon the secret of empire, freedom. Expecting the end to come soon, the governing powers in London had ruled with a light reign, consenting to one colonial demand after another for self-government. In these years of salutary neglect, the twofold roots of imperial connection had a chance to grow. The colonies rose to national consciousness, and yet, in very truth because of their freedom, and the absence of the friction a centralizing policy would have entailed, they retained their affection and their sympathy for the land of their ancestors. Thus the way was prepared for the equal partnership which it has been the task of these later years to work out. Two lines of development were equally essential. It was necessary to secure complete freedom for the colonies, to abolish the old relation of ascendancy and subordination, and it was necessary to develop new ties and new instruments of cooperation. Nowhere in early years do we find a more nearly adequate recognition of this twofold task than in the prophetic words of Sir John MacDonald. England, instead of looking upon us as a merely dependent colony, will have in us a friendly nation, a subordinate but still a powerful people, to stand by her in North America in peace as in war. The people of Australia will be such another subordinate nation. She will be able to look to the subordinate nations in alliance with her and owing allegiance to the same sovereign, 
who will assist in enabling her to meet again the whole world in arms as she has done before. It was Sir John also who urged that the new union should be called the Kingdom of Canada, a name which the British authorities rejected, ostensibly out of fear of offending the Republican sensibilities of the United States. Had that name been chosen, the equality of the status of Canada would have been recognized much sooner, for names are themselves arguments powerful with wayfaring men. Both in act and in word, the conservative chieftain oftentimes lapsed from this statesmanlike view into the prevalent colonialism. But he did much to make his vision a reality, for it was MacDonald who, with the aid of political friend and political opponent, laid the foundations upon which the statesmen of the new generation have built an enduring fabric. The first task, the assertion of the autonomy of the dominions, had been largely achieved. So far as it concerned domestic affairs, practically all Canadians accepted the principle for which liberals had fought alone in the earlier days. In the thirties, a British colonial secretary, replying to Howe's demand for responsible government, had declared that, to any such demand Her Majesty's government must oppose a respectful but at the same time a firm declaration that it is inconsistent with a due adherence to the essential distinction between a metropolitan and a colonial government, and it is therefore inadmissible. And a Canadian Tory legislative council had echoed that, the adoption of the plan must lead to the overthrow of the great colonial empire of England. But now, since Elgin's day, 1849, responsible government, self-government in domestic affairs, had been an unquestioned fact, a part of the heritage of which all Canadians, irrespective of party, were equally proud. In foreign affairs, too, some progress had been made. Foreign affairs in modern times are largely commercial affairs. In part, such questions are regulated by laws passed by each country independently, in part by joint treaty. Complete autonomy as to the first mode was early maintained by Galt and MacDonald. In 1859, Galt affirmed the right to tax even British goods, the right of the Canadian legislature to adjust the taxation of the people in the way they deemed best, even if it should unfortunately happen to meet the disapproval of the imperial ministry. And twenty years later, in spite of British protests, Sir John MacDonald went further in his national policy and taxed British goods still higher to encourage production at home. The tariff of 1879 was the last nail in the coffin of the old colonial system. Here was a colony which not only did not grant British manufacturers a monopoly, but actually sought to exclude from its markets any British wares it could itself produce. Self-government in the regulation of foreign commercial affairs, so far as treaties were essential to effect it, came more slowly and with much hesitation and misgiving. Negative freedom was achieved first. After 1877, Canada ceased to be bound by commercial treaties made by the United Kingdom unless it expressly desired to be included. As to treaties made before that date, the restrictions lasted longer. Most of these treaties bound Canada to give to the country concerned the same tariff and other privileges given to any other foreign power, and Canada in return was given corresponding privileges. Two went further. Treaties made in the 60s with Belgium and Germany, history discovers strange bedfellows, 
bound all British colonies to give to these countries the same tariff privileges granted to Great Britain or to sister colonies. In 1891, the Canadian Parliament sent a unanimous address to Her Majesty, praying for the denunciation of these treaties, but in vain. It was not until the Laurier administration had forced the issue six years later that the request was granted. Positive freedom, a share in the making of treaties affecting Canada, came still more gradually. When in 1870 Galt and Huntington pressed for treaty-making powers, Macdonald opposed, urging the great advantages of British aid in negotiation. A year later, however, Macdonald gave expression to his changed view of the value of that aid. As one of the five British commissioners who negotiated the Washington Treaty, 1871, he declared that his colleagues had only one thing in their minds, that is, to go home to England with a treaty in their pockets, settling everything, no matter at what cost, to Canada. In 1874, George Brown went to Washington as one of the two British commissioners in the abortive reciprocity negotiations of that year. In 1879, the Macdonald government made Galt ambassador-at-large to negotiate treaties in Europe, but he was hampered by being compelled to filter his proposals through the various resident British ambassadors. When in 1882, Blake moved in the House of Commons a resolution in favor of direct treaty-making powers, Sir John Macdonald opposed it as meaning separation and independence, ending his speech with the declaration, a British subject I was born, a British subject I hope to die. Yet action moved faster than the philosophy of action. In 1883, Sir Charles Tupper signed the Protocols of the Cable Conference in Paris on Canada's behalf, and at Madrid, in 1887 and 1889, the same doughty statesman represented Canada in the conduct of important negotiations. It was in 1891, only nine years after Sir John Macdonald's reply to Blake foreboding separation and independence, that the House of Commons and Senate of Canada, praying for the abrogation of the Belgian and German treaties, unanimously declared that the self-governing colonies are recognized as possessing the right to define their respective fiscal relations to all foreign nations. The first task had been practically achieved. Freedom had been won but it still remained to rise through freedom to cooperation, to use the newly won powers to work out a lasting partnership between the free states of the empire. This was the harder task. There was no precedent to follow. Centralized empires there had been, colonies there had been which had grown into independent states, but of an empire which was not an empire, of colonies which had achieved self-government only to turn to closer union with the parent state, the world had as yet no instance. It had not even a model in idea, a theory of how it should be done. Such a forecast as that already quoted from Sir John MacDonald came as near as might be, but this long remained a peroration and no more. No man and no school divined absolutely the present fact and theory of empire. It has worked out of the march and pressure of events, aided by the clash of the oppositions which it has reconciled. In the 80s and 90s, four possible futures for the Dominion were discussed. The first was the continuance of the colonial status, the second annexation, the third independence, and the fourth imperial federation. Colonialism had only inertia in its favor. 
Annexation ran counter both to filial sentiment and to national hopes, but its discussion served to show the desperate need of change and forced the advocates of other ideals to set forth their creeds. Independence meant the complete severing of the ties which bound Canada to the rest of the empire. Imperial Federation proposed to set up in London a new authority with representatives from all the white dominions and with power to tax and bind. Each played its needed part. The advocates of Imperial Federation did much to prevent a drift towards annexation which might otherwise have set in. The advocates of independence expressed the national aspirations which must be satisfied in any solution that would be enduring. The resultant of these forces was of a character none had precisely anticipated. Empire and independence were reconciled. End of section 11